Welcome. Thanks for coming back. I'm honored that you came back. I, you know, last week you didn't know Terry wasn't here. Some of you didn't know. And, uh, and, and then uh, a handful of you came back, so I'm real uh, happy about that. And my parents always watch online. So hi, Mom. Hi, Dad. I told them I would wish them a, a welcome from the camera, so I did my duty there. Well, tonight we're carrying on with the family tree, the unexpected family tree of Jesus. And before we get into that, do you know what a character actor is? You know, it's sort of like a supporting actor. Really good character actors, you will know their face because they are in dozens, maybe hundreds of movies or TV shows, and they sort of steal the show. They somehow, because they put so much into their character, you remember the part they played the thing is, you may not remember the name of the part they played, and you certainly won't know the name of the actor unless you're into that sort of thing. But most people, they would recognize a familiar face, and then they wouldn't be able to place the name of the actor. This happened to me in the airport some years ago. There was an actor who now is quite well known, but at the time, he was more of a character actor. And I'll tell you right now the name of the actor, because some of you will recognize his name, and some of you will have to pull out your phones and look at the guy. But the actor's name is John C. Riley. That's the name of the actor. He's been in a bunch of stuff. But when I bumped into him in the airport, all I could think of is, does this guy go to my church? Because he looks familiar. <laughs> that was my first reaction. And then I thought, no, no, I know, he's in a movie but I couldn't remember any of the movies that he had been in. But I'm sitting right next to him, and I felt bad because he's famous, but I don't know his name. And I didn't want to turn to him and go, I know you're in movies, but what's your name? You're not famous enough for me to know that bit. But I had a smartphone, and I finally remembered one of the movies he was in. So I pulled out my phone on the opposite side. We were sitting right next to each other, and I scroll through, and I catch his name. And then I started to remember more of what he was in. And uh, as I was sitting next to the guy, though, I, and if I would have waited just one more minute, someone would have told me his name because a plane load of people just got let off the plane and like the first guy out of the plane sees him and goes, John C. Riley, and made a big scene and I felt embarrassed for my new friend whose name I had just learned. <laughs> I, he's just trying to live his life and I kind of out of the corner of my eye spied his reaction and it wasn't pleased. He was just trying to go from one place to the other. And the, the guy who was quite starstruck, he goes, you know, Riley's right here. He goes, can I get a picture with you? And he just, I'm sitting right here and he just thrusts his iPhone into my chest, which for a moment I thought, I'm just gonna take this bad boy and run because it was a newer phone than the one I had. And so I, I like, okay, I get the phone and I'm about to stand up to take a picture and, and Riley at that moment, he just turns over, touches my arm. The arm still kind of feels more strong because he um, No, if it was like Tom Hanks, it would feel like real muscular, but it was just this guy. So he touches my arm and he goes, you don't have to get up, you bend down. And so the guy who gets the picture, he had a picture with John C. Riley, but he's like this in the picture because Riley didn't move and I didn't, I was not allowed to move. I would have gladly stood up, I didn't really care. And after we had this moment and we now were really close friends, I just said, I just said, you're really good at your craft. I appreciate what you do. And he goes, thanks, man. 
And that was it. That's the end of our friendship. It started and it went. Well, the guy we're going to look at in the Bible tonight is a little bit like that. You, 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 you probably won't even recognize his name as we read it, but I promise you, you've actually heard his name, maybe read his name before. But is this one of those sort of forgotten characters in the Bible? Key, important, and once we look at the guy, we'll kind of be a little surprised and stunned that we didn't pay attention better all along. And the topic or the title of tonight, I, I just sort of lovingly call it the prince and the prostitute. Because as we have been looking at the unexpected family tree of Jesus, we're going to bump into a guy whose name we should know, but probably don't. And the first time we bump into him is in the book of Exodus. Here is the text. It's Exodus 6.23. Aaron married Elisheba, daughter of Amadadab, and sister, right? You say it any way you want. The people who know how to say these names are long dead. And sister of Nishan, and she bore him Nadab, and Abihu, and Eleazar, and Ithamar, uh, but what I want us to zero in on is Aaron's brother-in-law. Aaron gets married to a nice girl. They all grew up in Egypt together, making bricks out of clay and straw and that sort of stuff. It was hard labor. And God had delivered them, and they're now out of the hardship of Egypt, but they're not in the promised land. They're in the wilderness. It's the early phase of all this. And Aaron evidently didn't have a wife. He is um, Moses' brother-in-law, or brother, excuse me. So Aaron's kind of a big wheel. He's the high priest, and he finds a nice girl and settles down. And it's Elisheba, which incidentally, if you're, is your name Elizabeth? Just raise your hand if your name is Elizabeth. There's got to be at least a couple Elizabeths in the room. This is where the name Elizabeth comes from, Elisheba. It's, Elizabeth's a very ancient name. And so Aaron marries Elisheba, but she, he now gets with her a wonderful brother-in-law, Nishan. And Nishan is the name that we're going to zero in on because this isn't the only time we bump into this guy. And incidentally, in order to marry, presumably, and this is how it's always worked, and occasionally in a Jane Austen movie, it doesn't work this way, but generally it works this way. If you are of a royal and dignified stature, you either arrange or purpose to find someone of similar ilk, correct? Now in the romantic comedies and so forth, there's the, there's the very wealthy guy that finds the beautiful but poor girl or vice versa, right? This is how it works in film. But in real life, it rarely works that way. Most of the time, people date within their social structures. Not saying that's right, that's just where you rub shoulders with, which tells us a little bit without telling us much that this is a guy who is of the certain kind of ilk that would have rubbed shoulders with a Moses and an Aaron. So the next time we see him, this is now in the book of Numbers, the very first chapter. The Lord spoke to Moses in the tent of meeting in the desert of Sinai. Now the tent of meeting Later gets a new name. They call it the tabernacle. This is the place where Moses would go and have a particularly unique time with God. And then he would come back out and he would lead the people with instructions that he had received. Later, the tabernacle would give way to the temple. So this is 
the tent of meeting. It literally is a tent where Moses met with God. So the Lord spoke to Moses in the tent of meeting in the desert of Sinai on the first day. We have a dating of this. On the first day of the second month of the second year after the Israelites came out of Egypt. They have newfound freedom. They're just a couple years in. They haven't established themselves yet. They're not working careers or the land because they are wandering at this point. And so the Lord says, take a census of the whole Israelite community by their clans, by their families, listing every man by name, one by one. You and Aaron are to count according to their divisions all the men in Israel who are 20 years old or more and able to serve in the military. There's a purpose behind this census. It's a recruitment measure. One man from each tribe, each of them, the head of his family, is to help you. So this is too big of a task for one person. So the Lord gives him some instructions. There's a dozen tribes in the people of Hebrew, the Hebrew people. So each tribe would have a leader. So amongst these leaders, these are the names of the men who are to assist you. From the tribe of Reuben, it's Eliezer of son of Shadur. From Simeon, you are to recruit Shalumiel, son of that guy. And then verse seven, verse seven, from Judah, from Judah, who do we meet? Neshon. Neshon, son of Aminadab. Neshon is the acknowledged leader of the people of Judah. And if you trace his lineage back, that means because he is a descendant of Judah, he is a descendant of Judah through the line of Judah and Tamar, the couple that we talked about last week. So this guy is in a very important family line. He is of the tribe of Judah. Now the other verses go on and list all the other tribal names, but that's the name that we're focusing in on. Well, let's go back to the tent of meeting. If we go over another verse, this is in Numbers chapter two, verses one, two, and three. It says, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, the Israelites are to camp around the tent of meeting, some distance from it. In other words, the tent of meeting is to be in the middle of all the tribes, but no one's to get too close to the tent because this is symbolic of the presence of God. And if you got too close, it would hurt you, not help you. And so camp around the tent of meeting, but not too close. Each of them under their standard, in other words, they'd have a big pole and they'd have a big cross beam on the pole and there would be some decorative flag that would symbolize the clan. And so holding the banners of their family. On the east toward the first name mentioned here, on the east toward the sunrise, the division of the camp of Judah are to encamp under their standard. And the leader of the people of Judah is... Nishan, son of Aminadab. His division numbers almost 75,000 people. So this is, um, this is pride of place to be first mentioned, but also to be the one that is just to the east. As the, as the sun rises, this will be the first that receives the sunlight, but it is also symbolic. These these kind of directional markers are symbolic. To name your name first is symbolic. Nashan is a big deal. He's kind of a, 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 a leader of the other leaders. And we're going to bump into that in a bit. But by proximity, 
and reference point to the tent of meeting, he's also somewhat the guardian of the tabernacle or the tent of meeting. So he's gonna have, his tribe is gonna have a duty. Yes, the Levites are the ones that will serve in and around it, but if push comes to shove and some shoving is required, Nashon will be up for the task. It sort of reminds me, um, every year at Christmas, and I hope you don't judge me for this, but um, every year at Christmas, on Christmas Eve, after I attend our wonderful Christmas Eve candlelight services, I hope you have your plans and have invited friends to attend one of our many candlelight services. So there you go, there's the commercial. This message brought to you by Crossings Candlelight Services. So after the candlelight services are over, I go home, I, I kick my feet up, and I watch the Christmas Mass from St. Peter's Basilica. Now, some of you grew up Roman Catholic and you're like, I watch that every year and cry. I grew up Baptist, so I grew up praying for my Catholic neighbors. And then later, as I got older, I realized some of my Catholic neighbors were praying for us Baptists. But that's God's sense of humor for you. But, but I love watching, and maybe it's because I'm from an informal more casual expression of the Christian faith. And I love what we do. So I don't have Roman Catholic envy, but I do respect it. And I do appreciate elements of it. And so as I sit there and watch it, so like I said, I started with forgive me if this offends you. So if you're offended, it's your fault, not mine. But I, I love watching the, you know, the, the robes. I think to myself, I would never, if I were a Roman Catholic leader, I would never want to be a cardinal because they have to wear red. And uh, that's not a knock on OU, by the way. I'm from Michigan, it's a knock on Ohio State. God hates that team. So he's okay with OU, but he prefers Michigan. But, but I, I, I look at all the pageantry, but the thing that always catches my eye are the Swiss guards. You know what I'm talking about? The Swiss guards, I brought along a picture in case you don't know, it's these guys. And during the, the formality and the pageantry of it, you have these guys dressed like they're medieval warriors with these big uh, uh, shining tall spikes or pikes or whatever you call those things. And of course they're wearing armor and they've got helmets and they look ridiculous. But I love it. I love because they pulled something from the past and and usually at some point as they describe the pageantry of the Swiss guards, they will explain something, which is they're not just decoration and for show. These guys are actual, legitimate, like special operations forces soldiers in order to be a member of the Swiss guard. And you can look this stuff up and check my work, it's true. In order to do this, you have to be from a particular place in um, Switzerland that's German speaking. Why that? I don't know, but it's the tradition. And you have to uh, qualify physically. You have to have served in the military armed forces and you have to basically be a type of special operations, not just like put in your time in the motor pool. You have to be able to really do damage to other people who plan nefarious things because they're the guardians. Now, the first time I saw them, I thought, well, that's fun that you brought a spear. That would be very helpful a couple centuries ago. But, but at some point, if you listen to the mass, occasionally when they tell the back story of it, they're like, also, they're packing machine guns. So uh, in the flume and in all the prettiness of the dress, don't 
act too hastily towards the Pope, they might kill you, which would be terrible on Christmas Eve. So don't do that. But, but this is, this is kind of how we could think of as Nashon. Yeah, he had ceremonial functions. Yeah, he had pageantry functions. I don't mean in the tent of meeting. That's for the Levites. He's from Judah. He is not from the Levites. But he has, if, if he needs to, he is a fierce warrior. Now, I'm not just uh, uh, assuming this because of this text. If we continue on in a little bit, not quite yet, we'll bump into this idea that he is a captain of the warriors. But before we get to that, one more like sort of Nashon story that's worth us noting. This is in number seven, verses one through three, and then uh, 13 through 17. So I've kind of squashed a couple verses together. If you read the whole chapter, it's a little bit longer. When Moses finished setting up the tabernacle, he anointed and consecrated it. See, they had a tent of meeting. Now they've got something super fancy. He also anointed and consecrated the altar and all its utensils. Then the leaders of Israel, the heads of the families, who were the tribal leaders in charge of those who were counted, made offerings. They brought as their gifts before the Lord six covered carts and 12 oxen, one ox from each leader and a cart from every two. In other words, you'd get paired up and you'd put your stuff on a cart with another tribal group. An ox from each leader, a cart from every two. These they presented before the tabernacle. The one who brought his offering on the first day was Nishan. I mean, this isn't, you just like pull a lucky uh, um, short straw. This is pride of place. This is, this is symbolic, but it's meaningful symbolism. And so what did he bring? Well, he actually brought the same thing. If you read through the Bible a year, you can, you can read just this one paragraph and skip about two chapters because every one says, this is the person's name of this tribe and this is what he brought. His offering was one silver plate weighing 130 shekels. You know how much that weighs? Me either. I don't know. It's heavy. Uh, it's a lot, okay? He's just letting us know that's a lot. And one silver sprinkling bowl weighing 70 shekels. You know how much that weighs? Yeah, same, a lot. It's a lot, okay. You're catching on, right. Both according to the sanctuary shekel. So in case you're wondering what weight of measurement, it's the sanctuary shekel, of course. Each filled with the finest flour mixed with olive oil as a grain offering. One gold dish weighing 10 shekels filled with incense. One young bull, one ram, one male lamb a year old for a burnt offering. One male goat for a sin offering and two oxen, five rams, five male goats, five male lambs a year old to be sacrificed as fellowship offerings. This was the offering of who? Nishan. So he's bringing it on behalf of the tribe of Judah. He's bringing it on behalf of his people. All right, I mentioned that he's a leader of leaders. He's kind of like the joint chiefs of staff. Well, here you go. Uh, on the, this is in numbers as well. On the 20th day of the second month of the second year. So all of those first several chapters of numbers take place in a, in, a, in a short period of time. There's great swaths in the Old Testament where a century might go by or a decade might go by or two decades might go by. But this over the last several verses that we've read has been within the same kind of short period of time. On the 20th day of the second month of the second year, the cloud lifted from above the tabernacle of the covenant law. Then the Israelites set out from the desert of Sinai 
And they traveled from place to place until the cloud came to rest in the desert of Paran. They set out this first time at the Lord's command through Moses. The divisions of the camp of Judah went first under the standard, under each of their standards. And who was it that led the way? Nishan, the son of Aminadab, was in command. So this is, this is a, the closest comparison in American uh, terminology it would be the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. That's evidently what he was. There were 12 tribal leaders and the tribal leaders are all named, but the first one is the leader. And he is the one that tells them, now you, now you, now you. And so he has this significant role and from time to time, the cloud would lift. And that was God's way of saying, you've spent enough time in this zone. It is time to move on to the next space. And they would move on to the next space. And each time, Nishan would lead them because he was the leader of the leaders. Okay, well, one more. This is um, one more text. But what's interesting here is that even though we've talked about Nishan, Nashan is not the prince we're talking about. We're talking about the unexpected family tree of Jesus. Nashan is dad. He's dad to a particular young man who occupies very little space in the Old and New Testament. As a matter of fact, almost none at all. If Nashan's a character actor and you can build some sort of qualities out of him, the only thing we can assume is a guy of that leadership would have uh, thought, well, what can I do for my son? And would have developed his son. And as in many ancient parts of the ancient world, uh, a commanding general would have as his aide de camp or his assistant or somewhere very close at hand, his offspring. This has been true through all of human history. So we have very good ground to stand on to assume that his son would be with him. Well, what's his son's name? We learn his son's name in a couple different places, but we'll just start with this one. Ram was the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab was the father of Nishan, the leader of the people of Judah. That's a great way to be remembered. That's quite an epitaph. Nishan was the father of who? Solomon. Not to be confused with Solomon, but you could... You could say his name a couple different ways. Selma, Salmon. Nobody living today knows how his name was pronounced. So take your best stab at it, but that's how it's spelled in English. That's his name. All right, well, let's put a pin in that because we need to move on from the dude to the lady. And to do that, we need to talk about the location of the lady. You see, the location of the lady is in a town known as Jericho. And the Hebrew people are camped still in what we, we might call the wilderness. But really, they're camped in modern-day Jordan. They're camped on the other side of the Jordan River. And they're in an area, and don't blush when I say the area because it's what the Bible calls it, they're camped in Shittim. I know, right? Some of these names are really weird. In fact, in Deuteronomy, or I'm sorry, in Numbers, there's a story that occurs just prior to the one we're gonna look at. And I used to have a copy of a King James Bible that was just an old, old from the 1800s, framed and on my wall, 
in my office when I pastored in Milwaukee. It wasn't mine, it was from one of my colleagues. And on that was the text from Deuteronomy that said, when the men of Israel were in Shittim, they committed whoredom. Now, it's the Bible, friends. It's in the Bible. You can check my work. You want to be a little offended, but you can't because it's in the Bible. But the pastor who loaned it to me, he was our pastor of visitation, a man close to retirement, almost 80. And he walked in and he had put it on my wall. He thought I should have it. It was in his office. He thought I should have it. He said, Bill, this is a reminder. When you're going through shittim, don't commit whoredom. Again, I know what you're thinking. You want to be offended, but you can't be because it's in the Bible. Okay. Well, I, I'm going to bring that up in a bit. So there is a purpose behind me telling you that story other than just to amuse you. But, but the story takes place in Jericho and there are men that are camped in that area on the other side of the Jordan River. And they're coming into a land that initially is dominated by this town of Jericho. And actually, we know where Jericho is. Here is just one example of it. They call it the, uh, a tell, but it is actually just an earthen mound. And this is old Jericho. This is the town, this mountain of sorts. And you can kind of get a sense for how big it is because of the vehicles that are there. On one level, it's very big. And on another level, it's not big at all. In our imaginations, many of these cities are the size of Oklahoma City, but they weren't. They were more the size, in fact, Jericho would have fit snugly in our parking lot. Not a problem. It was not that big. In fact, I would guesstimate that the actual Oklahoma facility, Oklahoma City Crossings facility, most likely is a bit bigger than ancient Jericho. And if you try to walk from one end of this facility to another, you're gonna feel like you're in an ancient city. It's gonna, your legs will get sore if you walk from end to end of this. So here's an aerial view of it. Uh, you, you, we saw that little parking lot down there to the bottom uh, right of the photograph and basically frame of reference, that's generally where that parking lot still is. So you can kind of see how big or not how big this town is. So with that, let's turn and let's meet our lady. Joshua chapter two, verse one. Then Joshua, son of Nun, who's by the way, he's, any, any trivia buffs out there, any, who's the only person in the Bible that didn't have parents? Joshua, son of Nun. Right, exactly. I know. Now that one you're allowed to hate me for. That one you're allowed to groan. Let's do it. Let's just do it together. Uh, that was terrible. It's a crowd pleaser every time. Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two spies. There's the town, Chittim, or the area. Go, look over the land, he said, especially Jericho. So they went. And they entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab, and they stayed there. Now, before we turn our attention to Rahab, we need to just kind of look at the first bit of this. There are two spies, which is kind of reminiscent of a 40 years prior when Moses sent 12 spies in. And if you know that story, you know 10 spies came back and said, do not go in the land. It's wonderful. It's everything God promised, but we are like little bugs. They will squash us, so we can't go. Even though God defeated Egypt, the superpower of the day, he is absolutely powerless against these city-states. There's giants in the land and we can't go. But there were two spies that had gone. You remember their names? 
Caleb and Joshua. And they were the only two still living, by the way, because everybody of a generation just wasted away because God said, well, if you don't want to be in the land, fine. You can die out in the wilderness. So they did. And so Joshua is a bit savvy here and he sends two spies. My hunch is he sent the most faith-filled, the most believing in God, the most optimistic guys. Anyone who is a Debbie Downer, he, he put them in another part of the camp and he sent the two guys that he had the most confidence would see stuff. Interestingly enough, some biblical scholars, because they try to sometimes make way too much out of the text, they spend a little too much time in there. And some people say, see, this is why God kept saying to Joshua, be strong and courageous, because he was actually quite weakly and he was wimpy and Joshua sent the spies, not as an act of faith, but because he just really struggled with his courage. And so God helped him out there. To which John Calvin, uh, the great reformer, in his commentary, anticipating that someday there would be people who totally misread the Bible, John Calvin, he said, is it likely that Joshua, who would only move when the cloud moved, who relied for all direction upon the Lord, is it likely that Joshua, without any reference from the Lord, would send in two spies? Calvin's answer, I doubt that very highly. Text doesn't tell us, but it doesn't seem like Joshua would be the type to do something without asking God's permission. So presumably God must have inserted the idea, send those two. Those are the two I want you to send. And so he does. And where do they go? They go to the house of Rahab, who is identified as a prostitute. And the, the house, we could think of it as, as, as like an inn. But many inns in that time provided many services, including the services of keeping you warm in your bed at night as you stayed there. And so there are references here that she wasn't just running a bed and breakfast. That's kind of the underlying current of this. Now, this is one of the things I really appreciate that we can read in the Bible. We live in a culture today that shades things, tries to go all the way around to avoid saying straightforward what things are. We will, we will give colloquial expressions to things and we will try to soften the harshness of things. And one of the things I appreciate about the Bible, oddly enough, is that it does not do that. The Bible's not gonna dishonor us in that way. It's going, to, it's going to shoot straight. It doesn't say more than needs to be said, but it is going to say what is true. And in this case, Rahab is identified as, in our vernacular today, we call the person a sex worker. And to be fair, what we're trying to do is we're trying to return humanity to the person. And maybe in some newer, newer, newer translation down the road, that's how they'll describe her. And that's not wrong. That's how our culture describes that work today. But that is who Rahab is at that given moment. Josephus, one of the early uh, Jewish writers writing right after the fall of Jerusalem, he actually refers to her as an innkeeper because there was this uneasiness about how to describe who she was, even though she played a significant role, as we will get into in the Old Testament. And so uh, the, the two spies go, and before you get carried away and say, oh, they went right away. I mean, they're spies, they're military men. They go immediately 
to this place for a little evening entertainment. Don't get carried away because the language is pretty clear that they lodge there, but they don't sleep with a person there. There is language that makes it clear what is happening there. And there is no reason to assume that they are doing anything more than trying to get into the place in Jericho where they wouldn't be recognized as outsiders because presumably outsiders would kind of hang out at a place like this. And so they go in to sort of cover. And why would I suggest that they actually had pure motives in it? Well, as I had just mentioned, back in the earlier uh, history of what the people had gone through, when they were in that area of Shittim, they had slept with local Midianite girls and it brought a curse on the people there. That's what that story tells us back in, in the, earlier in the book of Numbers. And they end up with a plague and people die because they graft into the locals and begin doing what all the locals are doing sinfully. And so God says, hey, if you don't want me around, you're gonna get what you get with that. And they end up with a plague. God redeems them and takes care of them. However, that would be fresh in the memory banks of these two guys. They would have survived all that. Presumably they hadn't engaged in any of that. So when Joshua sends them to Jericho, it's very doubtful that the first thing they would do is seek a little entertainment. They would be on mission. And so as we see, they're on mission. They're doing, uh, they're doing their work there to kind of get a lay of the land. But then something happens. The king of Jericho was told, look, some of the Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land. So the king of Jericho sent this message to Rahab. Evidently, his spy network in his own town, remember we saw pictures of it, not a very big town, so you could kind of see how word would travel pretty quickly. Well, so the king of Jericho sent this message to Rahab. Bring out the men who came to you and entered your house because they have come to spy out the whole land. But the woman had taken the two men. Rahab had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, yes, yes, um, they did come to me. So she admits that part. But I did not know where they had come from. Well, we're going to soon discover that's not true. At, um, and I, I don't know uh, where they come from. At dusk, when it was time to close the city gate, they left. Now, that's not true. I don't know uh, which way they went. Go after them quickly. You may catch up with them but she had actually taken them up to the roof and hidden them under the stalks of flax that she had laid on the roof. So the men set out in hot pursuit of the spies on the road that leads to the fords of Jordan because that's where the Israelite camp is on the other side of the Jordan. So the presumption is, of course, they would hightail it back to the camp to do some reporting. And so they pursue them probably on horseback. So they're gonna overtake two guys on foot. And as soon as the pursuers had gone out the gate, was shut. So the king here is unnamed. He doesn't have a name in the Old Testament. He's a real person, but his name wasn't important. Uh, but he finds out quickly that the men are in Rahab's house. And what's fascinating is just as Rahab has choices, the king has choices too. It, the, the king understands that the enemy is almost at the gate. 
And as we'll soon discover, Rahab's fully aware of their presence near the city of Jericho. Now the king could have uh, sent out an advance guard and he could have said, I understand you all are coming into this land. I would like to know more. Maybe we could be friends. One of the disturbing parts in the Old Testament, and I hear it all the time as a pastor, people say in the Old Testament, God tells them, wipe out these towns in these villages. Don't, take, don't leave anything living. And it is disturbing. It's okay to admit that. It's also okay to admit we don't understand all the whys behind that. That's part of faith. But there is some sensibility to it because modern archaeology has discovered that the people of this land committed some pretty abominable things in the worship of their gods. One of the, the things that was a, a common occurrence in that time in the land of Cana before the Hebrew people came in was a type of child sacrifice. People would literally sacrifice either a newborn child or a, a, a toddler and in order to appease or to bribe the local deity. And that was pretty normative. They dig up through excavation some of these little cremains and remains of small children. It's awful. And so the, the king of Jericho, just like some of the other kind of leaders of the land, could have approached the Hebrew people and said, what would it take for us to live peaceably with each other? Now, you might say, well, isn't there some rules against oath-taking and covenant-making with the locals? Not if they come in under the umbrella of the Hebrew people. Not if they say, let your God be my God. It seems like there's quite a story of what your God has done for you. And it's way more than our gods have ever done for us. And maybe it's time for us to switch teams. In which case, they live. Because that is part of the story in the Old Testament. Because it did happen that way. But it didn't always happen that way. And so that's a little aside because the king, instead of reaching out to the Hebrew people, he decides, I'm going to fight and I'm gonna re- I'm going to, I, I am going to resist. But Rahab, on the other hand, lays herself out in quite a personal risk. She lies to protect the men. And they run the like the... Keystone cops, the the security forces run after ghosts because she knows full well where they are. Now just think about what she does in order to protect men she barely knows who belong to a tribe she's not part of. She has up till now no reason to assume that they will treat her graciously. No idea what will come of her. But what she does know is they represent someone who is really quite grand. And so she ends up turning to them and the dialogue goes on. Before the spies laid down for the night, she went up to the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given you this land and that a great fear of you has fallen on us. Now she'd know this, you know, as she was shopping or if she was, had people over, she would hear the fear that people had. So that all who live in this land or this country are melting in fear because of you. The real word there is dread. They are living in dread because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt. That, that did not escape notice. 
The people were talking about it. There were witnesses. There were, there were people living in the land who said, yeah, I heard about this. And so she said, we heard about that since you came out of Egypt. That was 40 years ago. And what you did to Sion and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, you're in their land right now. We know what you did. You completely destroyed them. When we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear and everyone's courage failed because of you. Now this is the line. Up till now, it's a testimony of, hey, you got more power on your side. And there's different types of people who switch teams. There's the people who have no fortitude and courage at all. They're traitors. But then there are other people who take an assessment of a situation and realize, I'm on the wrong team. And so this is what we see in Rahab. This is what she says. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on earth below. And this, this last line it is so remarkable that we see. She, she yeah, okay, so she heard about the escapes from Egypt. She heard about the military advances. She heard about the victories. Everybody's afraid because they know they're next. That The Hebrew people are literally on the other side of the river. The river is at flood stage right now, so they feel a little bit safe. We know this from some of the, the markers as far as when this is occurring. So they, they kind of feel like, well, as long as the Jordan River is flooding its banks, getting all those people over here will be a hardship for them. We've got a little bit of time, but we don't have all the time in the world. That all makes sense. But the part where she says, you know, as I look at the situation, it seems to me that you actually have the one true God on your side. She actually uses a sentence that is found from the lips of Moses earlier in the book. Now, before anyone gets carried away, even scholars are like, well, did she exactly say that? Or is that a condensed version? It's probably a condensed version. But what the condensed version is, is her statement of fact and belief. She is essentially making a confession of faith. This is more and we see it in her life in just a few moments beyond this. There is something that changes. There is something in her. She is the first, this is just kind of a fun fact. She is the first non-Hebrew person in the promised land that places her faith in the one true God. She articulates it, but she also demonstrates it. And we might wonder, how does a person who hadn't heard, they, she didn't have the law, she didn't have the tabernacle, she didn't have Levitical priests, how would she have come to these conclusions? It's the same way that Paul describes in Romans 1 and 2, that people will look at the world around and go, there is a creator, there is a God. Paul, when writing Romans, could have said, hey, do you remember Rahab? She would be a great example of someone who didn't have the truth around her, but she came to the truth because she was able to make sense of the world as the world really is. And if you take a break from everything and you, you just sort of look around, you realize this world's a broken and frail place. The, the, the theology of sin is the one Christian theological position you can prove without a shadow of a doubt. All the other ones might be taken by faith, but if you don't believe in a theology of sin, you don't live in a real world. She could see that, but, but there was also something of the eternal God, the powerful God. Did she understand everything? No, of course not. But did she understand enough? Enough to change her life? Yes, she did. 
And so as the story goes on, she makes a deal. Now, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family because I have shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father and my mother and my brothers and my sister and all who belong to them and that you will save us from death. Now this word kindness here in, in, uh, in verse, uh, verse 12, uh, you might have heard of this word in the old language because from time to time various uh, members of our teaching team will share this word. But in the old Hebrew language, it's the word hesed or chesed. And, and so sometimes it's steadfast love, sometimes it's loving kindness, but she says, you've seen my loving kindness. She uses a word rich in theological meaning. She is conveying something. Again, do we have her exact dialogue? Probably not. But those who recounted knew what she meant and they interpreted appropriately. Now, maybe we do have her exact dialogue. We don't know. But for those who look at this with skepticism and go, well, how would we know what she said? Well, the people who recorded it put a great deal of effort into getting it right. And so what does she say? She says, remember my chesed for you. I, I put myself out for you. And so what do the men say? They say, well, our lives for your lives. They're making a covenant pledge. The men assured her, if you don't tell what we are doing, we will treat you kindly there it is again, has said, and faithfully when the Lord gives us this land. There's this confidence these guys have. There's two of them. They're in the city. They're underneath the, 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 the flax on the roof. And all she has to do is whistle or clap her hands and they're dead meat. And they're like, we already know the Lord's gonna take this down. And when, when he does, we'll remember you. We'll watch after you. It's a cool moment. It's a confident in God's, future action kind of moment. And it's this beautiful moment where they basically say, you're gonna be our sister. We're gonna welcome you in. That's okay. And so um, they, they make this covenant pledge with her. And so uh, it says they, um, she let them down by a rope through the window. Uh, for the house she lived in was part of the city wall. And she said to them, now, now, the next bit of language probably wasn't shouted out the window as they were on the ground. This is probably a recap of what they talked about before they went down. Go to the hills so the pursuers will not find you. In other words, don't go to the Jordan. Go the opposite direction. They're not going to look at you for you in the opposite direction. And that, that part of the countryside is full of all kinds of little caves and crags and the rocks. They will never find you there. So go to the hills so that the pursuers will not find you. Hide yourself there three days until they return and then go on your way. Now the men had said to her, this oath you made to us, swear, will not be binding on us unless when we enter the land, you've tied this scarlet cord in the window, which you will let us down. And unless you have brought your father and mother and your brothers and all your family into the house, if any of them go outside your house into the streets, their blood will be on their own heads. We will not be responsible. As for those who are left in the house with you, their blood will be as for those that are in the house. We'll, we'll save everybody that's in the house. Swear to it. She says, I agree, let it be so. So she sent them on their way. They departed and she tied the scarlet cord on the window. And there's this... Um, Interesting question mark about the scarlet cord or the red rope. And throughout the history of, of uh, 
various writings about this text, even in the, the Hebrew era, they, they remembered that when Tamar was giving birth to two boys, one put his hand out and they put a scarlet thread on it to say, well, he emerged first. And so there's some question, are those two things connected? And most people just, most people kind of shrug their shoulders, go, sometimes a red rope's just a red rope. Sometimes that's all it is. Sometimes it's just a signal to let everybody know, don't attack that house. But sometimes it's more than that. And in the history of the Christian church, in the early church fathers, they looked at the red rope and they go, no, no, there is symbols in all of this. It is a type of something. That red rope would symbolize the crimson blood of Christ. Uh, there's a, an author, Clement of Rome. He, uh, he wrote this. He lived circa 35 to 99 AD. He would have had overlap with the apostle Paul. He says, and moreover, they gave her a sign that she should hang out from her house a scarlet thread, thereby showing beforehand that through the blood of the Lord there shall be redemption unto all of them that believe and hope on God. Ye see, dearly beloved, not only faith but prophecy is found in this woman. And there's this growing admiration for this woman who was a prostitute who becomes a type of savior of these men who are in great peril were it not for her risking herself for them. Now, I don't know if Clement of Rome is right or not, but it makes for good preaching, so I kind of like it. But it could mean something like it's just the rope and it's red, so don't attack that lady's house. Well, let's move along in the story. Some of you already know how it ends. Then when they left, they went to the hills, stayed there three days, and then they end up running back across the Jordan River and they meet up with Joshua and they say to Joshua, the Lord has surely given the land, the whole land into our hands. All the people are melting away in fear because of you. So they report it and then they organize it and the Lord says, go get it. And they trot around the, the city of Jericho several times, seven times, they blow some horns, the walls come down. It's a real mess. And there's, a, there's this... Um, there's this scene towards the end of the Rahab story in Joshua, but we have to dump, uh, jump over four chapters. It says, Joshua said to the two men who had spied out the land, go into the prostitute's house and bring her out and all who belong to her in accordance with the oath to her. So the young men who had done the spying went in and they brought out Rahab, her father and mother and brothers and sisters and all who belonged to her. And they brought her and her entire family and they put them in a place outside of the camp of Israel. See, they're ceremonially unclean at this point. So they have to, when you got ceremonially unclean, you camped outside the camp for a while before you got brought inside the camp. So you're outside the camp. There's a, I love some of the artistic renderings. This one, uh, don't, don't, I give them points for some of the wall being down, but of course, you know, the whole wall would have come down. But it's a, a picture of kind of what it might have looked like. But I personally like engravings and etchings. And this is from about 150, 160 years ago. Uh, this is Joshua Spares Rahab. This is Gustav Dore. And it's on your little sheet if you want a little close up. And if, you know, it's Christmas time, this will look great on your fridge with a magnet. Particularly the guys, I, I kind of like the guys there. If you kind of look at the whole picture towards the bottom, there's a few guys that have lost their head. Really, no love for that joke, really? Okay, whatever. And, uh, and uh, you see right in the center, in the front is Rahab in the mix of this melee. And there is presumably Joshua on horseback pointing. 
And this is, um, this is the sparing of Rahab and her family, one artistic rendering. Dore drew uh, numerous, he, he made about 200 some odd engravings from the Bible to just sort of help illustrate and give a picture. And this is where, uh, this is where Rahab drops off the map. She drops off the map. There's no more mention of her in Joshua. There's no, there's no more mention of her specifically in the Old Testament. Uh, but the rabbinical tradition, they loved kind of tying loose ends up. And so the rabbinical tradition, um, they, they didn't leave well enough alone. The rabbinical tradition, um, they, the rabbinical tradition was, nobody really knows if they were creating sort of a historical fiction or if they really believed what they were writing. Kind of like um, a good example of it would be the modern day TV series, The Chosen. How many of you seen this, right? And I've had a number of people come up to me and tell me they didn't know Matthew was autistic. And I'm like, that is a TV show, man. That is not in the Bible. Maybe he was, maybe he was not. But that is just fiction. And I'm sorry if you're one of them that came up to me and I was just like, oh, yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Um, it's how I do sometimes. But, but, he, but he might have been. We don't know. Maybe he was, maybe he wasn't. But, but the chosen creates a, a nice fictional to fill in the gap so that you kind of get into the story. So one of the rabbinical traditions is like Rahab was such a special lady because of what she had done. She became Joshua's wife. Isn't that nice? She marries Joshua. And she becomes the ancestress of the great prophets Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Amazing. Awesome. Now, the Bible doesn't say that. There's no reason to believe that that's true, not even in the slightest bit. But what it does tell us is that they accepted her into the tribal groups. It does tell us that the early rabbinical tradition said she was a special lady and we're not going to ignore her contribution. But of course, if you have a copy of the New Testament, you know that she doesn't marry Joshua. We'll skip past Ruth here and we'll go right to Matthew. This is in the opening sentences of the opening chapter of our New Testament. Ram was the father of Aminadab. Aminadab was the father of, who's our friend? Nashon, the character actor. Nashon was the father of Salmon. And Salmon was the father of who? Boaz, whose mother was who? Rahab. Now just let that, sink in just for a second. You're um, Nashon, you're a prince, you're the joint chiefs of staff, you're the powerful guy. There's like Moses and Aaron and Joshua and Caleb and you. It's kind of how it would have worked. And you have a son and you're real proud of him and you want to marry him off to a special girl, someone who will uh, shore up and secure your family line, someone who is of nobility there's lots of princesses to choose from. They didn't call them that, but you know, other heads of family, there was options. And especially when you're nation, there are options. And in ancient customs, there, there was arranged marriages. So Selman may have found a girl and fell in love with her, but dad would have had a lot of say in this. And by the time of the conquest, it's quite possible Solomon himself had replaced his dad as the head of family. But Solomon marries the prostitute from Jericho. Now, that's an interesting part of the story, isn't it? But even more interesting is that we learn this from the gospel, from Matthew himself, 
who includes only four women apart from Mary, and all four women are Gentile, all four women are outsiders, all four women have some checkered element to who they are as people, and all four are purposely brought in to the family tree of Jesus. It's as if the Spirit of God wants us to know that there is no one so far removed, so far out there, that there isn't a place for them in the family of God. That even if they were known as a prostitute, well, that, that doesn't matter in the house of God. It doesn't matter what you were in the family of God. It's who you are when you come into the family of God. And this isn't just, uh, this isn't just uh, my opinion. This is actually the opinion throughout the New Testament. The writer of Hebrews says this, by faith, the walls of Jericho fell after the army had marched around them for seven days. And by faith, the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. In this chapter, the 11th chapter, the heroes of faith, she gets an entire sentence dedicated to her. Then the next sentence is, and what more shall we say? I don't even have time to talk about Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah and David and Samuel. David, who wrote most of the Psalms, he just gets an honorable mention. Meanwhile, Rahab gets a sentence. Does help that she's his like great, great grandma. So I don't know if he would have minded. And in the, the book of James, we read in the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. And if you read that second chapter, it's the famous second chapter that talks about faith without works is dead. And to prove his point, he says, look at Abraham. He was a man of faith that proved his faith by what he did. And then also there's Rahab. Abraham and Rahab. Only uh, I, I did it wrong though, because I said Abraham and Rahab, and that's not how it works. See, once you're in the family of God, it's, it's Rahab and Abraham. I mean, that's the beautiful part of it. You know, we have one of the neat facets of crossings, every part of crossings, you know, we have an active ministry to those who are incarcerated. But what you might not know is we have an active ministry to those who used to be incarcerated. And we make we make extra effort to make sure no one feels stigmatized around here. We don't think God's ever given up on anyone. There's, as long as you draw breath, there's still hope. There's still possibility. And Rahab is a, is a beautiful snapshot of the gospel. And the gospel is summarized by Paul in Romans 3. This is kind of the heart of his book. And Paul says, this righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ, not by what we do, not by keeping the rules or being better than somebody else. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile. He could have used Rahab here too. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. We don't come to Christ because we're better than other people. It's only through faith, and it's only by what Christ has done. There's this verse, and it's about um, food. It's not about people, but it's all about people. It's not really about food. It's in the 10th chapter of the book of Acts, and Peter has a vision, and he's kind of had a trance of some sort, awake, asleep, and God in this vision lowers down all this delicious food. There's bacon wrapped around water chestnuts. 
There's shrimp cocktail, deep fried as well as fresh. It's all delicious food. But it would all have been forbidden food to a, a faithful Hebrew person. And the voice says, take and eat. And he's like, I'm not touching that. I've never touched that. That is unclean. I'm not gonna touch unclean things. And then the Lord says this, don't you dare call something unclean that I've called clean. When I call something clean, it's clean. When God calls you clean, you're clean. There's a cliche, it's, uh, it's, it's so cliche. Don't put the sticker on your car. If you already have the sticker on your car, it looks great on your car. But it's, you know, I'm not perfect, I'm just forgiven. But behind every cliche, there's usually truth, and that is true. We're not perfect people, but we are forgiven people. And forgiven people can stand strong and acknowledge where they've been, but be oh so thankful for where they are. Well, I want to leave us with this quote. This is from another uh, church father, Origen. And Origen, on his reflections, his homilies, his sermons he gave on Joshua, he says this, Nevertheless, Joshua sends spies to the king of Jericho, and they are received hospitably by a prostitute. What's her name? Rahab. But the prostitute who received the spy sent by Joshua was, I love the way he puts this, was no longer a prostitute because she received them. You see, when Christ comes into a life, a life is transformed. We're never the same. And this is the line that should both challenge and thrill us. Indeed, every one of us was a prostitute in his or her heart as long as he or she lived according to the desires and the lusts of the flesh. See, um, I said it last week, and it's still true. The, the family tree of Jesus doesn't just tell us how he came, but it tells us why he came and what he does in a life. And so Rahab is really any, any of us. Welcome into the family line, brothers and sisters in the family of God, through faith by the work Christ did. And uh, we're not saved by a red rope, but we're saved by the crimson blood of Christ. So that's this week's Family Tree Ensemble. But next week, I'm shifting away from the focus on women in case you're like, I hope he does Ruth next. I'm not. I'm, I'm moving to the worst king of the people of Judah. So something for you to look forward to next week. All right. Thanks for being here. God bless. Have a great night.